Welcome to Trained, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm Ryan Flaherty, the Senior Director of Performance at Nike. On every episode, we call up the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, all the ways to train your body and mind. Before I tell you about our guest today, I've got a bittersweet announcement to make. Starting next season, I'll be stepping back from hosting Trained. It was a really tough decision, but I know it's just time for me to concentrate on my next big thing, even if I don't quite know what that is yet. But don't panic, the show will go on. When we launched this podcast three years ago, I had no idea if anyone was going to listen. I believed in the mission to provide accurate, empowering information on mind-body fitness to as many people as possible, but I had like zero journalism experience and the interviewing skills you'd expect from a lifelong jock with intense social anxiety. Still, I followed the advice of those mindset experts I'm always standing and decided to push myself beyond my comfort zone. As time went on, I became more and more comfortable there. And eventually, this project that I was totally terrified of doing became one of the true highlights of my career. But that would have never happened if it weren't for the support of many, many people. So I'm going to take another bit of advice I've heard once or twice in this podcast and express my gratitude. First, to our audience. Every review you post, every email you write, every time you share your story or you let me know how this podcast has changed your life, it all makes a difference. Because of you, the podcast ended up changing my life too. I also want to thank every guest I've interviewed, all the psychologists, physical therapists, researchers, athletes, and authors. They're the real stars of this show. I'm just here for the free advice, same as you. And I want to thank Nike for giving me the chance to do this in the first place. When we started out, podcasting was brand new for the brand. But they took that leap with me, and together we created something really special. And I need to thank the team of truly incredible individuals who helped get this podcast off the ground, have helped keep it in flight, and who are going to continue to take it to new heights. At the very beginning, we had Chloe Speed, Meg Bedard, and Mel August. And as we grew, that team became Chris Bruyere, Daniel Menashe, and Brian Bantog. Now, there's one person I left off that list on purpose, someone you'll be hearing from a lot moving forward. But I'll tell you more about her after the interview. So please stick around for the credits. Pretend it's a superhero movie and you need to know who's taking up the shield. And you'll want to stick around for this one. Because today, I'll be sitting down with a psychologist who believes that anxiety doesn't have to be a weight on our backs. Instead, it can be a wind in our sails. I want people to know that the healthy function of anxiety is to stimulate preparation behaviors. And so when we get a little anxious, Mother Nature gives us this little zing, this little boost, and we're supposed to use that to point it at our stressor or what we need to do. And I just hate when people are like, oh, no, gee, I notice I'm stressed or anxious. And then they waste it just thinking about how they feel stressed or anxious about that stress or anxiety instead of realizing like, oh, great, this is like a blue light special from Mother Nature of Energy. Like, this is my go time. That's clinical psychologist and author Dr. Chloe Carmichael doing a little mental trick that I've only ever seen her pull off. That's to make anxiety sound like a superpower. Today, we dive into the huge range of techniques that Chloe has developed to help us learn how to use anxiety. We talk about why we should value our daily stressors, how to redirect the power of catastrophic thinking, and even how we can choose our meditation techniques to get just the right EQ on our anxiety. Hi, Dr. Carmichael. How are you? Hi, Ryan. I'm great. Thanks. And uh, please, you can call me Chloe. <laughs> well, first off, 
Chloe, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, Ryan. And I had a chance to check out your Instagram as well. And I was really excited to meet you. You have a beautiful family. Appreciate it. Yeah, they're crazy at times, but yeah, fun and beautiful in pictures. We just got back from a little wedding we went to and traveling with a newborn and a two-year-old is quite the adventure these days. So I'm glad we're speaking about stress and anxiety because it was a little bit of that was going on (laughs) during the travel. Could you just give us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist and the author of Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. And before I was a psychologist, I was actually a yoga teacher and Mm -hmm. I was teaching private yoga lessons with really driven, neurotic New Yorkers that wanted to just (laughs) be their absolute personal best. And they were having me design custom yoga programs and meditation programs individualized for them. And it was really through that work and seeing how these people were using what I was teaching to just really optimize themselves that I got super interested in going deeper and learning more about the mind and the brain. And that's how I ended up getting a PhD in clinical psychology. So where did you get to the point where you decided to kind of focus on stress? Well, to be totally honest, when I was starting my private practice, I was trying to think about where to specialize, and I just wanted to make sure I could get by and survive. So I was in New York. I knew that there were definitely a lot of anxious people in New York, and I was looking at the two main areas of either anxiety or depression. And sometimes we think of depression as associated with lethargy and not really having enough energy, whereas anxiety is often thought of sometimes as an excess of energy and what I've Mm. come to think of as nervous energy. And that was just an area that I personally felt like I related to more. And there's a lot of me in the book. (laughs) So have you dealt with stress and anxiety your, your whole life? A hundred percent. And for me, though, really the shift was learning to understand that that's not a part of yourself that you want to like get rid of. So Mm. one of the most pivotal things I learned in graduate school was that the healthy function of anxiety is to stimulate preparation behaviors. So when we're feeling a little bit anxious, we don't necessarily just want to like take deep breaths and think about a beach somewhere. Sometimes we want to actually harness that energy and use it as a springboard to fuel what it is that we need to do. Can you just define stress and anxiety for us and what the difference between them are for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So stress is the real-time moment of having your resources pushed to the ultimate capability, right? And feeling those proverbial muscles shaking as you're trying to lift a weight, literally or figuratively. And anxiety is thoughts or feelings about your future, even if it's like a future of two seconds from now, about you know your ability to handle that stress, that you're going to know what to do or how to get through it. So I think it's very natural, Ryan, that for many people, those things blur together. But again, for me, the biggest reframe that I want people to know is that that anxiety is not necessarily the enemy. When anxiety gets too intense or pathological, in my experience, it's usually because a person has been trying to stuff it down because they think they're not supposed to have it. The trick is just to learn how to point it in the right direction direction, how to shape it with the right techniques and use it for the resource that Mother Nature intended it to be. Mother Nature gave us that for a reason. 
Yeah, I love that you're saying that because I've heard this from a lot of the neuroscientists and sports psychologists that I've worked with. When they talk about anxiety, stress, and loneliness, those are more of the warning signals that your body's kind of preparing you for something that's about to come. They talk about more learning from it than trying to avoid it. Yeah, definitely. And there is absolutely a sweet spot as well. So to a certain degree, of course, it's actually good to be able to sometimes play through the pain or be able to override certain feelings that you're having in a moment because you need to put on your game face and you're on Mm -hmm. a mission and things just have to get done. However, some people can almost get too good at that skill of learning to put their emotions aside or learning how to play through the pain to the point where either they disconnect their awareness of it altogether, which is dangerous physically or emotionally, or the other way that it can become harmful is if they just simply forget about it and they forget to like get a massage after that hard run or make sure that they reconnect with their social support network if they're feeling lonely. One topic you cover in your book is the impact of mindfulness and meditation. Could you just talk a little bit about what is actually going on in our brains when we meditate and how that helps us process stress and anxiety? I think that it's going to have different effects on your brain depending on what type of meditation you're doing. So for example, in my book, I've got some meditations that are truly about mindfulness, which is to build that metacognition skill. And what that's doing is it's literally beefing up your executive lobe, which is the part of you that's able to just look and notice like what's going on, not only in your mind, but also in your body and to just notice how you're feeling. And I know some people might say like, well, why would I need help knowing how I'm feeling? I'm feeling it. I know it, right? And so I would encourage those people to think like, have you ever been at a deli and found yourself snapping at the sandwich person? And then only when you hear yourself snap, you're like, oh, damn, I guess I'm a little irritable today, right? (laughs) And then that provokes you to think like, okay, well, what is going on? So that mindfulness metacognition booster helps people to be able to see and notice those things in real time. What it also helps people to do if they do it properly is to be able to put words on what they're feeling, which I think is Mm. a big one. Like we've all had times when we've just been really upset or frustrated about something, but we can't find the right words to express it because it just sounds stupid. But then when somebody reflects it back and says it the right way and it sounds so logical, we're like, oh yeah, thanks. Like I don't sound like a crazy person. That's right. That's what I meant. So that's what like the mindfulness meditations can do. What the really good relaxing slow down meditations can do is just what they sound like, right? Just really help you zone out. So I personally think of meditation as almost like an operating switch button, just depending on which meditation you do. One of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you because I I just think having worked with athletes for a long time and seeing the impact that stress has on not just the mind, but I think our physical bodies too is really big. Can you just explain the impact that stress can just have on our bodies overall? Yeah, definitely, Ryan. I definitely think that the better that we can train our bodies, it decreases our cortisol and it makes us more vibrant, more healthy. We sleep better. We breathe better. All of those things are definitely going to be helping our brain health. But what also I think is really interesting and exciting about training the body and the way that that impacts the mind and vice versa is that when we 
train the body, we increase what psychologists call our sense of self-efficacy, which is our belief in our ability to do something that we say we're going to do. So if I say, I'm going to wake up at five tomorrow morning and I'm going to go for a run, and then I do it, I not only get the physical benefits of the run and the mental benefits of decreasing my cortisol, but I also get the psychological benefits of knowing that I kept a promise to myself and that I can master my body. And so that increases then my self-esteem and my ability to then you know branch out into the world in so many other ways. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions surrounding stress that you hear today? The big thing that I want everybody to know is that stress and anxiety are not necessarily a bad thing, right? So high achieving people by definition are going to be under stress because if we think of stress as being at the outer limits of your capabilities, if you're always trying to expand your capabilities, then we actually grow through stress, right? If you're lifting weights in the gym, when you get to that point when your muscles are shaking and they're starting to give out, they're under extreme stress, but that's the point in time where they're actually going to grow the most. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would want people to know about stress. And then for anxiety, I want people to know that the healthy function of anxiety is to stimulate preparation behaviors. And so when we get a little anxious, Mm. Mother Nature gives us this little zing, this little boost, and we're supposed to use that to point it at our stressor or what we need to do. Nothing breaks my heart more than when people are like, oh no, gee, I notice I'm stressed or anxious. And then they waste it just thinking about how they feel stressed or anxious about that stress or anxiety instead of realizing like, oh, great, this is like a blue light special from Mother Nature of energy. Like this is my go time. They just need to Mm -hmm. point it in the right direction. Yeah. I always talk to my athletes about stress and pressure being a privilege. If you're in pressure, stress-filled situations, especially in sport, it's generally because there's something on the line. It's a big game. And to be in that moment is something that you train your entire life for. And it's a privilege to be there. So if you start to use it as an energy source of like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. And The ability to reframe that in their mind is really powerful. And learning to manage stress is like really important for all of us. But how do you go about pinpointing the cause of stress? And do you have any tips for our listeners who may be trying to identify or get more in tune with their own levels? I would, number one, go back a little bit to mindfulness. I like to reframe mindfulness as metacognition, which is the ability to see and understand your thoughts in context and understand where they're coming from. But another technique that I think can be really helpful for people is something called mind mapping. Yeah, mind mapping is a fantastic tool. Yeah, and I found that it can help people sometimes to kind of get under the hood and understand like what are some of the drivers that they're not necessarily aware of. So with mind mapping, what you would do is you would take like say big game, like big playoffs, and you just put it on a piece of paper with a circle around it. And then you draw little spokes out from the circle and you write down the first words that come to mind. And so that for some person, it might be like competition, scared, money, just all the different things that that might mean. And then you look at each individual spoke, like say money, and then you draw spokes out and say, well, what are the first words that come to mind for that? Right. And then, you know, maybe somebody might say like, well, it makes me think of how I grew up dirt poor and that I was always, you know, insecure about that. And then you start to realize that this big game is actually triggering all these other factors in your mind that could be contributing to a sense of anxiety that you couldn't quite pinpoint before until that mind map helps you to put words on what the whole experience means to you. I do a lot of mindfulness practice with my athletes and I I do a lot of self-talk. You know, we work on go-to scripts and things like affirmations to kind of get themselves out of a negative headspace. 
Are there any tools that you like to recommend when someone is kind of overwhelmed by anxious thoughts? Yeah. So thought replacements, those things that people can think to themselves, like I'm strong, I'm capable, and I can count on myself, for example, would be like a thought replacement that would fit most people, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Another technique, actually, I came up with it myself, is what I call the new mental shortlist. So if we've had something like on our minds for a while, and we know it's just not a productive topic for us to go on to, then we think of five really good topics for ourselves to think about instead. And that could be anything from your birthday and holiday shopping list to planning out your next workout. And that way, whenever some old topic comes up that they know is truly just a dead-end rumination topic that they really should not be focusing on at all, it's a lot easier to pivot off of that Just like when we say don't think about pink elephants, all that does is make us think about (laughs) pink elephants. But if we have five good topics that have an alternative mental shortlist, that can be an easier way to do it. I love that. You talked about this in your book, how people who reach some of the highest levels of success in whatever field they're in have this ability to harness that anxiety and stress in a positive way. Can you talk about some of the clients you've worked with that have done that? Yeah, definitely. Like, for example, just thinking of a actually a Broadway star that I was working with, and she was having this really big audition coming up that she was super nervous about. And she found that when she would think of the audition, she would just kind of freeze with anxiety. And once we were able to recognize that that anxiety could actually become a resource, and we then just instead listed like, What are four or five good things that you could do with that energy? Like you could sing the songs that you're supposed to be singing. You could Google the people who are in charge of making the decisions so you could learn more about them and see what connections you might have. You could go to the gym so that you can look strong and healthy at your audition, right? So just learning other ways and being methodical and strategic And the way that we want to handle that energy, because again, the thing I think is important to know and to remember is that when we get stressed or anxious, we go into this fight, flight, or freeze, and our vision, even our physical vision actually gets narrower. And in our mind's eye, all we can think about is what we're afraid of. And just focusing Mm. on what we're afraid of in and of itself is not going to be helpful, but it does jack up our bodies with energy. So the trick is to keep the jack up your body with energy part, but then have a good list of what you should be doing instead with your mind or your body to forward Mm. towards your goal. Yeah. It's so funny because I talk to people all the time. They're like, how does someone like a Serena or a Super Bowl, a quarterback who has the whole game on the line, how are they able to like in the moment, you have something negative happen, but then like reverse the momentum back in their favor. And I I always surprise people when I say this, but I think they don't realize how rudimentary some of the tools that these athletes use are. One of my athletes who's one of the best in the world, they like will read note cards on the sideline in between the sets or the plays. Yeah. So first of all, I love what you said about the handwritten note cards. I encourage people to actually write down those, you know, mental shortlists or thought replacements or whatever, because a lot of studies have shown that if you do that in your own handwriting, then it becomes what psychologists call an environmental cue. And when you see those cards and you review them every day, just the mere sight of those cards and the feel of those cards helps to activate that mental state Mm. that you want, right? So I think that's very important. Another thing that I think is very helpful is something I call the toggle technique. I encourage people to mentally rehearse having the worst thing happen 
and then toggling into a position where they regain their composure and they feel their sense of control. And then they toggle back into the sense where they feel thrown off for some reason. And then they mentally and physically practice their little routine of recentering themselves and regaining control of themselves and toggling back and forth in a low stakes environment like my office or your home or whatever really helps you that you're able to toggle back and forth when it counts. And I always tell people like, we don't want to practice at the game, right? So we don't want to practice getting out of that thrown off feeling at the game. We want to practice it in a low stakes environment, like just a practice session. It's like that idea of just playing out like role-playing some of these things in your mind, visualizing some of them of like, oh, what if that did go terrible and go wrong? What would I do? Oh, I'd do this and I'd still be alive. I'd still be healthy. I'd still be okay. I could still manage. And it's just been a really huge beneficial thing for a lot of my athletes to do that. That concept of toggling, it's really cool. I haven't heard that before. So I really like that. Thank you. Yeah. So I would totally agree with you that like when we think about like, quote, perfect game, that doesn't mean a game like where the opponent never scores on us or like does something that surprises us. A perfect game is one where we know how to mentally stay in the game, even when those things happen. But I also really like what you said about visualization. When things don't go our way, a lot of people will feel their body start to shut down or they'll feel like their heart or their throat start to close up. And what's been very helpful, I think, in many situations for people is to practice learning how to inhale and then exhale, visualizing your exhale going into the area of your body that is shutting down. Mm. Visualizing yourself breathing into that part of your body. And I've worked with many people that have actually found that to be pretty effective. After the break, two anxious people ask why there's so much anxiety in the world and break down a four-step plan to help make sure that anxiety helps rather than harms our relationships. If you're enjoying this episode of Trained, here's some good news. You'll find more wellness expertise every day on Nike.com, the Nike app, the Nike Run Club app, and the Nike Training Club app. You can learn more about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, and you can get started on a workout as soon as you finish this episode. So I read something that was just really eye-opening, and this was pre-pandemic, that 20% of the United States has a clinically diagnosable anxiety disorder. What do you think is causing that? Well, a few factors. I mean, so for one thing, and I'll say I'm a fan of social media, I'm all over it, and I love it, but I do think that the rise of social media has caused people to have really skewed and inaccurate comparisons of themselves Mm -hmm. to other people. And I'm not somebody who just says in simple ways, like, oh, don't compare yourself to other people. Because the truth is that in psychology, a certain amount of social comparison is helpful, especially for people who are competitive. But the problem, of course, with social media comparisons is that, you know, you're comparing your life to somebody else's highlight reel. Another thing, Ryan, that I I think could get at that question is that there has been a decline in religiosity in the United States over, you know, decades. And what's interesting, I think, is that psychology studies have shown that it doesn't even matter what religion you are, 
but having some kind of faith or religion or spirituality is a big protective factor when we come under times of stress. And so a lot of the top performers that I've worked with, whether it be in business or athletics, even if they're not religious, they might be into like a mindfulness practice or have some kind of a spiritual connection. The root word of psychology is psyche, which in Greek traces to the word spirit. So I think maybe that's in some way why people are getting so interested in psychology and mindfulness and that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Is part of it that we don't teach young people how to deal and manage with stress and anxiety early enough on in their life? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts about that. One thing, especially when you're dealing with young people, as you said, like around 25 or so, that's actually when the executive lobe gets fully formed. And so the tricks that they used to have to manage themselves might have been appropriate or more helpful for somebody that didn't have that fully formed executive lobe. So Mm. like really harsh, negative self-talk. Frankly, an 18 or 19-year-old might have needed to kind of say to themselves, you are going to amount to nothing if you don't get out (laughs) of bed and go for that run. Like you've got to do it or else, you know, your life is not going to go anywhere. That type of kind of iron fist might have actually been helpful for them at a certain age before they had a fully formed executive lobe. And then if they're still using that iron fist when they have a different vehicle really in their mind, then there could suddenly become a lack of fit. What do you think are some of the shifts that you believe we still need to make to improve our perspective on mental health? Everybody wants to be their best self. And then I think that almost makes it hard for people to really face it when there's something about themselves that is astray, so to speak. But the thing is, is that what we cannot acknowledge, we cannot tend to. And so to give ourselves permission to do that is an important first step. And so when you notice yourself backsliding or lapsing into old habits, instead of getting angry and kind of slapping yourself, I actually encourage people to congratulate themselves on their awareness that they're going off track. You also focus a lot of your attention and your work on relationships. And how does stress impact relationships? And conversely, do you see relationships kind of impacting stress? Yeah, definitely. So my other book is actually Dr. Chloe's 10 Commandments of Dating because I'm I'm mm. super into relationships. With stress, it tends to put people into one or two directions when it comes to relationships. People either tend to lean into their social support network Or they tend to shut down and feel like they have to hide it, right? And study after study shows that leaning into your social support network not only helps you to actually solve the problems, but people are actually usually interested and relieved to learn that leaning into your social support network does not push people away or make them get irritated with you. If it does, then those were not really your friends anyway. What (laughs) leaning on people during times of stress does is it brings people closer because those people feel special that you chose them to open up to. And it actually sets the stage for them to feel that they can open up to you. If you walk around pretending like you don't have any problems, other people will feel actually less willing or able to be vulnerable and share with you. If you have a tendency to just shut down in silo, you want to override that by sharing with other people. An easy way to do that is even to just jot down like three or four bullets points of like what it is about the stressor that you want to communicate to somebody 
And then you can even just say to them, like, hey, you know, this is a little out of character for me. Dr. Chloe told me to do it on a podcast. I was (laughs) listening to the train podcast with Ryan. So I'm sharing a little bit about, you know, what's on my mind. And again, it actually, it works on multiple levels because another reason that evolutionary psychologists have speculated that humans evolved to such a sophisticated society is because of our gift of language, that by talking Mm. problems over and hearing from other people's experiences, et cetera, it improves our problem-solving skills. So sharing with your network just helps tactically on your problems, but it also increases your sense of social support and it sows the future seeds for your network to look at you as a resource as well. That's incredible. Yeah, I, my wife and I just celebrated our anniversary yesterday and her and I talk about this a lot. I'm someone who's dealt with anxiety and stress my whole life. Can you give some tips for people who are in new relationships and how to effectively manage stress or anxiety when they're first starting out in a relationship? Yes. Um, so I actually have a blog about this with like a little system, an acronym called WAIT. It's about when and how to share personal information because mm. I know that people with trauma, it can be a hard one because, you know, you don't want to just wear it on your sleeve and feel like it has to define you by sharing it early, but sure. you also don't want to feel like you have to hide it from the other person either. So a simple acronym is WAIT. So W, you have to want to tell the other person Um, And then the A is that it has to be the appropriate time and place, right? It shouldn't be like at a party after you've had five or six drinks. And then the I is for inoculate. So I would advise inoculating by sharing with the person a little bit first by saying, for example, like, I went through some stuff in my teens that I'm not really super proud of, but I've done a lot of work on it and I'm figuring it out as life goes on. And then you give it two or three weeks with that person and Mm. you see, do they throw it back in your face or do they gently ask you about it before you like feel like you have to kind of go all the way and share it all with them? And then the T is for trust, you know, that you want to make sure that you have a significant duration and frequency of contact with the person and that they're a reliable person emotionally as well as just logistically that they show up for you. That's a great tip. I I would love to ask the reverse of that. What what about if you're somebody in a relationship who your partner dealt with trauma when they were growing up and they're trying to share it with you? How can you best support them? Yeah, well, first of all, I would just, you know, want that person to know that they don't have to pretend like they have all the answers, right? In fact, sometimes even just being comfortable to say like, wow, you know, that's a lot. To be honest with you, I don't even know what to say, but I'm really glad that you decided to share and to open up with me. That part, Mm. I definitely know for sure, because your main goal generally is to just communicate acceptance to the other person. Usually people with trauma are just so afraid that what they're going to share is going to push you away or change the way that they see you. And so just to communicate love and acceptance. And then you can also say to them, I'm sure as I like, just think about this, I might have more questions. Is it okay if I circle back and ask you? And by the way, feel free to like talk more anytime. And then Ryan, just one other thought about it, just to know about trauma, to normalize that we don't just process it once and then it's over, right? (laughs) Like it's normal and natural and positive that we reprocess it. So in the example, suppose like a young woman whose father passed away when she was a teenager, she has to go through processing it at that time. But then when she walks down the aisle and gets married and dad's not there, she has to reprocess it, right? So whether you're the person with the trauma or the person who's the partner, Just be willing and able to understand 
that it's going to keep coming up. We never want to say, oh, well, we talked about that already. Why are you always yeah. bringing that up, right? But yeah. on the other hand, if it seems like the person is bringing it up like all the time to the point where it's almost like they may need a therapist, they need a bigger space to talk about it, you can mention that too. You can say, you know, I wish I had all the tools to help you. I want to be here as much as I can, but I wonder if one way I could help is to maybe go with you to a therapy session for moral support to just help make sure that you get the support you need. Yeah. And as someone who in their teens was super adverse to any therapy or anything, I'm now somebody who's for the past 15 years has gone consistently every month at least. I think people just think, oh, I'll go a few times, I'll work through it and I'll be good. But I'm like this never ending peeling onion. It's like, there's like layers and then another layer and you're like, oh, I'm good now. Nope, there's five more layers. It's just constant. Yes. And my goal is that it can start to feel enriching and positive yeah, for people, you totally. know, just like, oh, wow, today I like learned a new way to relate to people or a new way to connect with myself. It, it can be very positive. Absolutely. So over the years that you've been in your private practice, working with some high performers, like you mentioned, you working with Broadway stars and some athletes, what are some of the traits that they all share in common that you would love to share with our audience that might help us? Definitely a high level of conscientiousness, right? So if you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, like you're there, you just have a personal responsibility that you're going to get those things done. But then to me, the, a big one as well is the way that they handle mistakes or areas for growth. There's two key ingredients that I think are essential. One is honesty. The other is compassion. So mm. if you have a problem where you're not running fast enough or, you know, whatever it is, you can't just happy talk your way around that. Like you have to be willing to say, yeah, you know what? I've gained 10 pounds and I'm just not running as fast, you know, or whatever. Right. We've got to be able to tell the truth. But we also have to be able to have compassion around it and say, the reason for that is because I did have a divorce this past year. I have been dealing with my pain through food. And so I'm going to give myself the gift of finding other ways to care for myself and those emotional needs. So I don't have to keep doing it through food. And then I'm going to also give myself the gift of a really amazing trainer and I'm going to get myself back on track. Like, so they take that deep level of compassion with themselves, but they're also unfailingly, starkly honest about what mm. the issues are. You just mentioned something I think I want to repeat because I think it's super important. When I worked with some of the top athletes in the Olympic when we did that study on the highest performers, one of the things that came out was that they kind of across the board had this ability to treat themselves like their own best friend. In their own self-talk, they weren't really judgmental and harsh on themselves. They kind of responded in a way that gave themselves grace that like recognized that, hey, you gave your best effort and it just wasn't your day-to-day. -day. Like you'll get them next time. And I think it's a really powerful tool. Right. But also, like you said, with a best friend, we can have real talk too. Like, so with a best friend, we don't have to just be like, oh no, you were great. You know, <laughs> like we, 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 we can talk yeah, about no. the real talk, but then we also layer in that level of compassion and, and likability at the end of the day there's such a thing in my yoga days that we used to refer to as the point of pleasant tension, right? So if you're mm. going to say be doing a forward bend and going to make your hamstrings stress a little bit, you want to bend over far enough to actually feel the burn, but you don't want to bend over so far that you rip the muscle. And so learning <laughs> how to locate that point of pleasant tension and then depending on what situation you're in, which of the techniques, whether it be in my book or other repertoires that you might have, are the ones that are going to help you to really find that sweet spot. I love that. 
I mean, there's not a human being on the planet that doesn't deal with stress and anxiety in some way. And to have a better idea and understanding of how to use it to help us and the positive side of it is, is really powerful. So I just appreciate you taking the time with us today. It was awesome. Ryan, it's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. And if people do want to learn more, they can go to nervousenergybook.com and there's all kinds of resources there. Love it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. I don't know about you, but everything that Dr. Chloe told me today felt a little like a personal message. Maybe it's because this is my last episode as the host of Trained. Like I mentioned at the top, I started this journey with a major league level of social anxiety. I might talk fast, but that's usually because I don't want to be talking at all. I kind of want to get it over with. So I've been looking back at that even more anxious dude from three years ago and kind of reframing things in my head. Like maybe I didn't succeed and grow in this role despite the social anxiety. Maybe it was the anxiety that got me here. Maybe like Dr. Chloe said, it was a little zing and a little boost from mother nature. In that case, in addition to all the other people I thank today, I probably should be thanking mother nature too. But that's not the final thank you I promised you earlier. That one goes to Jacqueline Byer, who'll be taking over hosting duties for Train starting this fall. Jack does have that journalism experience I was talking about. She spent time at Shape and Self, and she spent a ton of time here behind the scenes at Trained. She's also got that five facets know-how you need for this job, with certifications in personal training, group fitness, nutrition, behavior change, and carpentry. Okay, one of those isn't true. In fact, you might already know her and love her. She stepped up to the mic while I was on paternity leave. So I hope you'll join Jack when she kicks off our next batch of incredible episodes. I'll be there too, as a listener and a fan this time, because I have no doubt whatsoever that the podcast is going to get stronger and stronger. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to. And it helps other people find us too. If you've got a question for me or my guests or a topic you'd like to see covered, email me at trained at nike.com and I'll see what I can do. This has been Trained. Jack, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide isn't a substitute for any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions.